So thank you all. Thank you, Jennifer and Alex and Warren and Marge and everybody who makes this, this service together possible. I also want to thank Ginger Helgeson, who uh, won the auction item last November to determine the topic of a sermon. This is the topic of her sermon. The political is personal. So, <clears throat> I grew up at least partially outside of Detroit and was heavily influenced by my paternal grandparents who were solid Midwesterners to their core. My grandpa Marty ran a small local newspaper where grandma was the administrator and they were completely entrenched in the social fabric of their small Michigan town. As local journalists, they maintained a certain social standard and reputation in the working class society and were concerned, of course, with appearances and plight society. And they instilled in me the cardinal rules of interaction, at least the cardinal rules according to them, Always refuse any offer three times before accepting. Always listen before speaking. And never, never, never talk about money, religion, or politics. Never talk about money, religion, or politics. Now, looking back, I'm not really surprised that I became a minister and get to speak publicly, regularly, and at length about little else than money, religion, and politics. In fact, I went back through my, my sermon folder this week and counted, and indeed, this is the 385th original sermon I've delivered in more than a decade working in parishes now, and all of these have included some mention of one, if not all, of these taboo topics. Money, religion, and politics. Now why is it that in polite society, even society maybe perhaps not so polite, that it's considered rude to speak of these three fundamental things? Well, regarding money, it is true that none of us here has the exact same access to resources, income, and wealth as anyone else. And the amount of money we have is at times a source of shame, or pride, or guilt, or anger. Having spent time in my life with both the very poor and the very rich, I can say with certainty that this prohibition on talking finances is universal across the economic spectrum. We never want to offend someone who doesn't have quite as much. We never want to appear poorer than those who have more. And yet it is the nature of our capitalist society that none of us has the exact same as anybody else. Now we shy from the topic of religion for similar reasons perhaps, we don't want to appear more or less faithful than another. We try not to offend by broaching the theological underpinnings of our morality. It is usually sufficient, for the most part, to say we're simply Methodist, 
or we're Jewish, or we're Unitarian Universalists, and leave it at that. It's rare that there's ever a follow-up question short of the standard, what's that, when reacting to claiming UU. But I found that more often than not, when people ask about Unitarian Universalism, they are really just looking for an opening to tout the values of their church, not to learn about my own. Now, talking politics, too, is a potential social pitfall that might turn a pleasant dinner outing into gas, an actual debate that might leave the participants frustrated with one another. This moratorium on political discussion in society is even reinforced by our expectation of a secret ballot and our experience with the glaring inaccuracy of political polling. So why is it that these three topics, among so many we could shine in polite discourse, are so frowned upon? I think the answer is not that they're unfit for discussion or that they're not important to us, but rather that they are so important, so personal, that breaching them in casual conversation can open the door to immediate disagreement, discomfort, conflict. But these are precisely the reasons we must talk about them, must acknowledge the role's wealth religion and politics play in our lives and indeed in our very realities. Though these may be personal, private matters, this doesn't mean that we need to treat them as secret or out of bounds. Now our society, whether we admit it or not, was founded on what at the time were very progressive Christian values. So concerned were our predecessors about government infringing on the rights of religion that we established an official separation of church and state. Now this was to protect religion from government and not the other way around. The prohibition against speaking for or against any particular political person or party from the pulpit was a much later development in American society as, again, the language of our Constitution is written to limit the power of the government and not to limit the power of faith. Remember that line? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. For those of you who don't remember, that's the very first clause to the very first sentence of the Bill of Rights. So you can kind of assume it was important to those guys who wrote it. Over time, this has come to be interpreted to mean that if government cannot interfere in religion, religion may not interfere in politics. But we know this is not exactly the case. Indeed, our whole government, remember, was established upon some very specific religious values but not necessarily the values we associate with those which most influence our government today. Deism, rationalism, and yes, even Unitarian and Universalist understandings of the inherent goodness of people and the right of the individual conscience 
are key to the foundations of our democracy. If we did not appreciate or trust individuals to act morally and in accordance with their own best interests, we could therefore not trust any government that results from their input. It is upon the collective wisdom of the polis that the strength of any democracy lies, and not on any singular authority or act of grace. Now, Kennedy understood this as he articulated it in his, his inaugural speech, saying that it's a false belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of state, but from the hands of God. He's pointing out that regardless of one's belief, it is up to us who constitute our society to work for the betterment of all, doing our own work in order to fill, fulfill the justice God seeks for us. Now, on the religious side of the spectrum, we, we need to look no further than some of our direct spiritual ancestors and influences for justification to talk politics. I'm going to lift up two this morning, but there are many others. These are the likes of folks like Henry David Thoreau and the Reverend Thomas Starr King. Thoreau's landmark essay on civil disobedience from the 1850s provided the essential ethical groundwork for nonviolent protest and engagement in the actions of our government. His famous insight that, quote, under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also a prison. This insight paved the way for Tolstoy, Gandhi, and eventually Dr. King to mount their massive movements of social change through nonviolent campaigns, all of whom just men who spent their fair share of time in prison. Likewise, Reverend Thomas Starr King was compelled to take on the politics of his time from the pulpit and lecture circuit, once saying that he could not preach politics, but refused to not preach humanity. Starr King would leave successful ministries with universalists in New England to minister to the burgeoning Unitarian movement in California in the period just after statehood, making him really the first minister in our lineage to serve both Unitarian and Universalist churches. As the political winds whipped up the storm that would eventually become the American Civil War, Star King would travel the length of California, preaching and lecturing on the evils of slavery and the importance of California staying in the Union. Though his travels would exhaust him and ultimately cause his death just prior to the end of the Civil War, he is credited as nearly single-handedly preserving California's allegiance with the North and is recognized still to this day as the most influential Californian ever. I cannot preach politics, but I refuse to not preach humanity. And what's so ironic about this, this original taboo, this moratorium on speaking politics from the pulpit or around the dinner table, is that it is perhaps the one thing in our society which affects all of us, 
rich or poor, black or white, male, female, or non-gender, binary, temporarily able-bodied or not, liberal or conservative. The political is personal. And this phrase, of course, is a rallying cry of, we'll call it the early second wave of feminism, and one of the slogans of the Equal Rights Amendment movement, an amendment I'm very sorry to say we have yet to ratify, which would guarantee equal protection under the law regardless of gender. But the sentiment is so much more than this one, one issue or identity. We can point to how policy has affected all of our lives in subtle and not so subtle ways. At our very founding, Americans were upset at the practice of taxation without representation that held the American colonies subject to British law despite having no elected officials in the House of Commons, nor American aristocrats in the House of Lords. Despite having no say in the laws that governed them, the Americans were still expected to uphold these laws and increasingly divert their own wealth towards the power of the empire. Unlike many other colonies, the Americans did, in fact, assume enough wealth themselves to wage a battle against the imperial powers and achieve independence long before the other outposts of the British Empire would fall. But how ironic is it that we perpetuate this practice of colonialism even today in our own nation, as evidenced by the ongoing unrest in Puerto Rico, where right now there are protests in the streets condemning the true feelings of their governor, as evidenced by his horrific correspondence just brought to light, in which Governor Rossello refers to female political opponents as whores and questions the sanity of those who disagree with them, among many, many other egregious things said in the 800 or so pages released by the uh, Puerto Rican press. Now, as a result of this scandal, Rossello has accepted the resignation of many of his own inner circle, but has, to this point, adamantly refused to resign himself. Now, think about it. If the, the governor of Tennessee had done the same thing, do you think we'd not hear about it? Do you think Governor Lee would still be in office weeks after these res revelations came to light? Now, likewise, if we were truly participants in a representative government, then shouldn't we all be represented in some fashion by our elected officials? So today, the white men, like myself, only account for 31% of our American population. They control 77% of the seats in Congress where women are over half of our population, fewer than a fifth of our congressional representatives are female. Finally, millionaires constitute less than 5% of our population, but 51% of Congress have at least a $1 million net worth, and many of these, much, much more. Now, this is, of course, to say nothing about representation of other minorities, 
especially transgender and non-gender binary folks, because there are no representatives from this demographic currently serving, or at least openly serving, at the highest levels of our legislature. The way this disproportionate representation affects us is hard to comprehend. So embedded is it in our culture and government. But do you really think the ERA would have sat on the back burner for decades if women constituted the vast majority of Congress? Do you think that the abortion bans and attacks on women's health care and health care in general sweeping our nation would exist? We elect folks for, who, for the most part, don't have uteruses and can afford their own expensive private health insurance. Why should we be surprised when a teenage woman is forced to travel a state away to receive contraception and abortion or prenatal care? And we can sit here and lament the mechanics of oppression at work that perpetuate our system, continue the proliferation of racism, sexism, ableism, and distrust of poverty. We can do this all we like, pointing to Citizens United and gerrymandering as things tying our hands and making it impossible to work for change. But the sad fact is, we ourselves are responsible, and we ourselves are complicit in the action of a government. Right now, at our border and in so-called detention centers across the country, including right here in Kenosha on 88th Avenue, thousands upon thousands of asylum seekers are imprisoned. Make no mistake, these are not temporary housing or processing centers as much as they are contemporary concentration camps where the most vulnerable and worst treated are children. Under a government which imprisons any unjustly, the true place for a just man is also in prison. Under a government which detains any unjustly, the true place for a just person is also a detention center. We have not only a political but personal investment in the actions of our government for both good and ill, as the implications are nothing but personal. If millions of people can flood the streets of Chicago after the Cubs won a baseball game in October of 2016, why can we not demonstrate in equal numbers for human rights in Madison, Springfield, and Washington, D.C.? If we can address the opioid epidemic affecting middle-class white people, why can't we take on crystal meth and crack cocaine which ravage our communities of color? If men have access to Viagra through insurance, why do so many carriers not cover female contraceptives and abortions? And if we can mobilize over a million and a half American Facebook users in a plot to storm the classified military compound Area 51 deep in the Nevada desert, why can't we inspire just as many people to confront the literal concentration camps all around our country. The reason I'm afraid 
Instead, it might just not be polite to talk politics because it might turn out to be personal. But I say, go forth, talk politics, talk humanity, and engage in the process by which we all govern and are governed. Nothing short of this will save our country or ourselves. Go and be personally political. Maybe so. Blessed be and amen.